Good evening, Wisdom Eccentrics by Natran Rinpoche, Chapter 36, Part 2. Some days later, I received a telephone call. It was Jimmy Riggs in Rinpoche. I receive your tape, he guffawed. You think Jimmy Riggs in is crazy man? He continued with great good humour. No, Rimshe, I think you're an extremely interesting man. Oh, yeah. Anyway, you are accomplishing this as I say you. You Switzerland coming possible? I agreed immediately, hang the cost, and Rimshe sent me details of where he'd be. I booked the flights and started looking around for something to sell. There were all kinds of radically strange characters on that trip. I became aware that Rinpoche was developing a Sangha like no other I'd ever seen. There were, over a period of time, people who included ex-criminals, ex-mercenaries, wheeler-dealers, lap-dancers, prostitutes, an erotic masseurs, a dominatrix and an entirely affable honest-to-goodness punk rock musician. There were all manner of singularly extraordinary personalities, some of whom were unusually aggressive. The only thing most of them had in common was a fervent attachment to Rinpoche. I should call it devotion, and in some ways it probably was. Devotion takes many forms. What was obvious was that Rinpoche attracted those who walked on the wild side, as well as those who simply wanted to practice Nyingma Vajrayana. Fist fights were not unknown between them. High volume sexual forays in the early hours of the morning were also popular, as were screaming matches between cuckolded suitors. My bet noir, Gilbert Harris, was back. Rinpoche never threw anyone out on a permanent basis. He'd thrown Dave Matthews out the year before, but he was back too, grinning like a fiend as usual. I got on well with Dave most of the time, but he was a madcap cockney gent whose alcohol intake was staggering. An evening with Dave took its toll and I avoided a second round whenever I could. I enjoy a drink, but I've never been given to masochism. Rinpoche had kindly asked someone to pick me up at the airport, so I arrived in surprising comfort. I was introduced to the hosts who were an exceedingly charming couple. I liked Genevieve and Edouard immediately. They were evidently of several social classes beyond mine, but they had no pretensions or hauteur. Rinpoche did have a number of fairly normal and pleasant students, but they tended to keep a safe distance from the denizens of the demimonde as I thought of them. Genevieve and Edouard told me that I was to reside with Rinpoche's other students in the granny annex. So, after an excellent cup of coffee and a fine croissant, I made my way there. As I walked across the courtyard, one rather tall and menacing fellow 
dressed in paramilitary clothing and black knee-high lace-up boots, came barrelling past. He was snarling at considerable volume, completely unaware of my existence. Rinpoche's got me by the balls. He's got me by the fucking balls. He had his right hand extended as he strode by in an upturned claw-like gesture, as if he were demonstrating the grip that Rinpoche had employed. I watched him as he passed and wondered what other marvels I would witness whilst I was lodged in the granny annex. I didn't have to wait long for, other, for further marvels. The first night I awoke with the awareness that I'd been favour favourably commoded by a visit to the bathroom. To get to the bathroom I had to pass through the kitchen and on my way through I was confronted by an unusual spectacle. A naked man and woman were engaged in a raw minced meat fight. They were hurling the bloody stuff at each other, scooping up what they could find on the floor that had fallen off their bodies and hurling it back again. They were streaked with blood from the meat and laughing hysterically. They hardly noticed me as I passed through and passed back, and I decided it was probably better not to draw too much attention to myself. The next morning the mess had been cleared up and nothing was mentioned concerning the event. I decided to pass on the meatballs should any be served for lunch or dinner. One fine morning I was sitting with Rinpoche in the garden of the house where he was teaching. There was a fellow there, a philosopher, and he was explaining that plants were sentient on the basis that they reacted to injuries caused to other plants around them. This could be detected by faint electrical pulses in the plants. Rinpoche was teasing the fellow by saying that machines also made movements and had observable reactions, but that didn't make them sentient. The discussion went back and forth for a while, and then Rinpoche turned to me. What are you saying? Plant sentient or non-sentient? I replied cautiously, not wishing to contradict Jimmy Rigson Rinpoche. I don't know, Rinpoche. Right, you guessed it. I could still be an idiot on occasion. Yeah, you one big diplomat, he sighed and shook his head. Then he fixed me with wide eyes. You tantric man, you must be knowing, he exclaimed, but not with a fraction of the wrath of which he was capable. All right, Rinpoche, as you request, I'd say they're sentient. Rinpoche smiled ever so slightly and asked, Why this saying? Well, you mentioned that machines make movements in reaction to causes. Rinpoche nodded his agreement. So machines are made by people and they are engineered and programmed to act exactly as they act. As I'm a tantric man, I don't believe in God as the uncreated creator. Because I don't impute the existence of an uncreated creator who made the universe, 
I have to say that no one designed plants to respond as they do. Because no one designed plants to react as they react, they must be sentient. It's only possible to say that plants are non-sentient if you believe in an uncreated creator who designed them. Yeah, Rinpoche burst out laughing. I laughed along with him. The philosopher then asked, So Rinpoche, do you now agree then that plants are sentient? Oh yeah, you heard what Chogyam is saying? He is tantric man. I am nothing more saying. Later, Rinpoche gave an empowerment into the Bardo Tudrong. This is often referred to as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but Bardo Tudrol means liberation through hearing in the Bardo. It was marvellous to experience such an elaborate empowerment with Rinpoche, and as usual with these occasions, I found myself in some kind of timeless reference of non-reference. After some hours on the first day, Rinpoche suddenly stopped mid-chant and sniffed his armpit. You think I am smelling? Someone once said Jimmy Riggs in smelling. Then, without missing a beat, he continued chanting. At the conclusion of the day, I turned to Dave Matthews and began to speak. Did you? But he didn't let me complete the sentence. Yeah, mate, not seen nothing like that before. Bloody brilliant. I never saw anything like it before or since. Rinpoche was unpredictably unpredictable. He gave us all a piece of kusha grass to place beneath our pillows. We were to recall our dreams and relate them to him the next day. My dream was bizarre to say the least. I was sitting in some alpine meadow by the side of a narrow winding road that led higher into the mountains. There was a roar like thunder and suddenly Rinpoche appeared riding a very fine motorcycle. He was dressed in deep maroon leathers with wonderful stitching work that ran up the legs and sleeves. It was a variegated colour, rather like that found on western boots, and took the form of flames. Rinpoche rode into the distance and disappeared over the edge of a ridge into the sunset. I was alarmed by the spectacle of Rinpoche apparently plummeting to his death and sat feeling deeply saddened by his loss. Then, suddenly, there was an explosion like the sound of a plane breaking the sound barrier and he appeared again flying out of the heart of the sun. He skidded gently to a halt next to me and said, Do not worry, Gilbert has been eaten by a sheep. I responded that I was sad to hear it. I wouldn't wish anyone to be eaten by a sheep. But he simply laughed. Yeah, sad for the sheep. It will have a bad stomach. He then roared back in the direction from whence he'd initially come. When I recounted my dream, Rinpoche nodded for a while. Yeah, maybe not so much meaning coming, but Anyway, this good dream. Gilbert had been absent on this occasion. 
He'd been suffering in certain ways as a result of Rinpoche's sudden liaison with the rather stunning Swiss lady on whom Gilbert had set his hopes. Someone found him lying amongst dustbins, drunk and splattered with vomit. I felt sorry for Gilbert. No matter how obnoxious he'd been, I couldn't help feeling sad that his romantic dream had been shattered. I'd had romantic dreams shattered and I knew how painful that could be. The next time I saw him, I greeted him warmly, ready to lend my ear and offer him some kind of emotional support. But he just plied me with his habitual word games. I said, goodbye, Gilbert, and good luck to you, and left him where he stood. Rinpoche's sudden liaison was, however, illusory. The lady simply spent a great deal of time with Rinpoche. I got the distinct impression that he was protecting her from Gilbert. Rinpoche had been aware of Gilbert's predatory intentions and had spared her whatever might have been in store for her. Some days previously, Rinpoche asked me, Where passport keeping? In my satchel, Rinpoche. In the flat back section that opens up. I indicated its exact location, and my satchel is always with me. Yeah, good, this intelligent. Then passport never losing possible. It's not just that, Rinpoche. By law, foreigners are supposed to keep their passports with them at all times. If the Swiss police wanted to see my passport and I didn't have it, there'd be all kinds of inconvenience that I'd rather avoid. Rinpoche said nothing. He simply nodded with approval. Then he chuckled slightly as if something had amused him. I didn't inquire as personal questions such as what's amused you, Rinpoche, are not appropriate in Tibetan culture. And I was nothing if not polite. I was not sure why Rinpoche had inquired about my passport. Again, I never asked. I supposed he was just checking to see if I was the kind of goddamn Tomyor who'd mislay his passport and get into all kinds of ridiculous trouble. Since I'd been in Switzerland, I'd been working on a text for Rinpoche. Some helping person had slapped white out all over it in an effort to make it more legible. Then Rinpoche had it photocopied, with the result that the dark Tibetan paper had merged with the text due to the unnatural contrast provided by the whiteout. My task was to rewrite the text. This required my painstaking examination of every letter, and that was a monumental task. It was only possible because of guesswork based on my knowledge of Vajrayana technical language. Mostly I struck lucky and recognised a syllabic mess as Yeshe or Kilkor, but sometimes I had to ask Rinpoche. He always knew immediately and never chastised me for getting stuck. He could see how hard I was working and he liked my Tibetan handwriting. Sometimes I worked in Rinpoche's room and sometimes on my own. Often when I worked on my own, Kitja Vutas, a brawny Belgian girl, would burst in and shout, 
You, you're still here, you pig. You've been here too long. Nobody wants you here. When are you leaving? She actually employed violently obscene expletives, but these need not be transcribed. I'd reply, sorry, I'm here, Kitra. I'll leave as soon as my work for Rimshe is completed. My return flight isn't so far off, but it will take me right up to my return flight to finish the work, even if I'm not interrupted. Then she'd swear at me a little longer and I'd say, if you want to speak to Rimshe about it, it could be possible to have me removed earlier. But, I pointed out, I can't make that decision myself. I've committed to completing the transcription of the text. She'd usually then shout obscenities at me a while longer before leaving and slamming the door behind her. This happened almost on a daily basis. It was not a big problem because I regarded her as being of an emotional age of four years. She was just having tantrums. I always replied in a calm, slow voice and gave her no fuel for abusing me further. One night, just after I'd returned to bed, Kitja burst into my room, naked, and yelled, All right, you have wanted this all week, so we may as well have sex now and finish it. She was quite a spectacle. My bed was a futon on the floor, so Kitja towering over me was a fearsome sight. Now, I'm not usually slow with words, but this was a little out of the ordinary. I should have declined and made my apologies immediately, but as it was, I was stunned, like some goddamn deer caught in the headlights. Before I knew what was happening, Keetja leapt forward with vehement, salacious intent. I suddenly understood my predicament and flipped out of the bed like a greased eel, only just evading her licentious onslaught. I was lucky it wasn't an English sheet and blanket situation or I'd have been trapped. As it was, I span out onto the floor, hit the ground and leapt to my feet, fast as a baby wildebeest. They have to hit the ground running or they're dead, and that's just what I did. Being pinned to the floor by that terrifying termagant was to be avoided at all cost. Kitja was flying over quite fast enough to have rendered me severe damage on impact. I'm dreadfully sorry, Kitja, I began. I mean no slight on your generosity, but I can't do this. I've got a lady friend back in England who would not be pleased, so I hope you'll understand. My final word was cut short as Kitja slapped me across the face with remarkable force screaming obscene invective as she did so. Then, in a flash, she was gone.